This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley at a special edition of the podcast recorded live in Birmingham. It is a huge pleasure to be here at the Electric Cinema, the first time you've ever recorded actually inside a red box. The, uh, the room was painted at great expense uh, this morning, just to make sure uh, you could all enjoy it. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by uh, a stellar panel to try and answer the essay question, can the Tories survive and should they? I'm joined by Times columnists Hugo Rifkin and Alice Thompson. Will Tanner, former Deputy Head of Policy in Number 10 and now runs the Onward Think Tank. And Patrick Kidd, the Times sketch writer. Please welcome them all. start with you, Patrick, because I know you've been here uh, for some time. Uh, give us a sense of the, the mood at the, at the conference. It's weird. It feels like there's a couple of different conferences going on at the same time. So I don't know if, if any of you have been into the conference hall, because next to no one has, it seems. <laughs> um, and when you're, I mean, the Foreign Secretary gave his speech to a room that was half full. Ruth Davidson, who is, you know, loved in the Tory party. Her speech this afternoon was, again, it was uncluttered with members. And yet you go to the fringes. Uh, Dominic Raab was a packed-out event at the IA this afternoon. And also on the Remainer side as well, Anna Subri and uh, Justine Greening were speaking at, uh, at an event. And that, that was, again, packed to the rafters. So it seems like people really don't want to listen to the Cabinet making speeches. But th- smaller events where, where you can engage a bit more, so they're, they're quite keen. So I think what Patrick says is absolutely right. It does feel like... Uh, almost what the government is doing at the moment is not the real story of what's going on in the Conservative Party. What's going on is essentially the debate, the uh, battle for ideas outside of the cabinet, outside of the government with all its restrictions, um, and the ability, as you say, Matt, for people to kind of give big, expansive speeches, unscripted, un, uh, untampered with from number 10 at uh, think tank events uh, uh, around the conference. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think those are the ones that are driving the news agenda as well, which is one of division and uh, kind of um, different messages rather than the kind of coherence that Number 10 might particularly want. What about you, Alice? Have you enjoyed what you've seen in the conference so far? I feel it's rather like going back to school and being told you're repeating a year. So (laughs) you're like, please, no. I mean, that's exactly the same in some ways as it was last year. Nothing's moved on. So that's really difficult and depressing. And then you get here and you're right. I mean, none of the ideas are coming from the main platform. 
you get absolutely nothing at all. You know, Boris running through a wheat field, everyone's talking about. Whereas, you know, I, you get an announcement that just comes and goes. I mean, the one about tipping with waiters, you think, really, if that's the big announcement of the day, no wonder everyone's on the fringe, isn't it? Hugo? Yeah, I mean, speaking as like someone who's not really a political journalist, but more of a general purpose journalist, it might sound a bit odd. <laughs> I don't really know why I'm here. As in, well, as speaking in, as a political journalist, I don't really know. Exactly. <laughs> well, you are a wire. Uh, no, no, I don't know why I am. I don't know why you're here. No, I don't know why you're here. No, but I mean, but because there's no, um, aside from the the, the, the sort of the, the internal grind of politics, I can't see any story here that anyone else in the world will care about. You know, it's, there's no, um, what happens this week does not decide the trajectory of the Conservative Party. It does not decide the trajectory of Brexit. It does not matter. And the whole thing seemed to me to be suffused, not to make your life feel futile or anything, but seems to me <laughs> sort of suffused with this atmosphere of this does not matter. Party comedy season every year makes my life feel futile. <laughs> There's nothing quite like being in Brighton with the Lib Dems two weeks ago to make you really question. Yeah, well, that really was an empty room. Um, they, do great mer- they do brilliant merchandise at the Lib Dem conference, by the way. I, I bought uh, my, my colleague uh, a Tim Farron letter opener. Would you like to get? <laughs> what do you want, a Liz Truss letter opener? The mug. A Michael Gove mug or something yeah. like that. Well, you've all got mugs. You've all got red box mugs. <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's what, I know that's why you're here, and you're just saying we can go. We'll go in a minute. We'll go in a minute. Um, just what, before we get stuck in properly, um, just hands up if you are here for the conference as a delegate, and hands up if you're a normal person. <laughs> oh, there's more, more normal people. More normal people. Uh, well, that's good. Well, let's okay. Let's dig into. The, so, so earlier in the summer, when we were sort of thinking about what was the title going to be, actually, at last year's when we did the live podcast in Manchester, the question was who was going to be the next prime minister. Because um, that felt very imminent. It, you know, it was in September, October last year. That felt like a very live question. And actually, for all of Theresa May's faults, which I point out on an almost daily basis, uh, one of her remarkable abilities is just grinding on. Every morning she gets up, and for reasons that only she knows, she, she does it all over again. Um, so it feels like that question is, is, is now less imminent than it was this time last year. But there does seem to be a massive question about what is the point of the Tory party? beyond delivering Brexit. Is that a fair question, Alex? I can't think really of any policies. Even, you know, Michael Gove's the one that's coming up with the most policies, but even his is, you know, we're going to give out more sandwiches. And that's not going to be enough in the end. Banning straws. Banning straws. But even that seems to become a massive like flashpoint. It's now a thing to say, why are we banning straws? You've got the sort of the, the liberal wing of the Tory party, so we shouldn't be going around banning things. This is, this, you know, the Robert Halfon and uh, Pretty Patel wing. Even, there's even an argument about whether or not to ban plastic straws. Yeah, well, I think that's the problem, is that there just isn't an idea, is yeah. there? There's no... And we don't even think about vision. We just want one or two ideas to keep going, don't we, really? I think we need a referendum on it. We could, we could call it... A, <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we could call, wait, wait for it, there's a joke. We could call it... <laughs> well, we'll be, the, we'll be the judge of that, Patrick. It, it could, I've built up too much. It could be a straw poll. Uh, yeah. No, cut it, cut it. Right, we'll, we'll cut that out. <laughs> uh, that's gone. That's gone. Um, Will, what, what, what is the point of the Tory party, as the person who's <laughs> most responsible of anyone on the panel? I mean, the Conservative Party, historically, has always been a party of competent government, right? It's the natural party of government. It's been around for, uh, well, longer than any political party uh, in modern political history around the world, and there's good reason for that. It um, kind of gets on with the job. It actually does exactly what Theresa May does every morning. You kind of get into work and actually get on with the job in front of her. 
um, uh, to the best of our ability and in the national interest. And I think that is, that is the historic point of the Conservative Party. I actually think that's exactly what the Conservative Party should try and be right now. It does need to set out a much bigger vision uh, and need to respond to some of the big social and economic challenges, which at the moment the Labour Party is being much better at diagnosing, if not coming up with the right uh, solutions for. Um, but but, it, but it, it, it mustn't kind of uh, throw all of that up in the air and, and, and kind of go back to kind of dogma and doctrine. It needs to, it needs to kind of retain its pragmatism because that's its core strength. I, I sort of hesitate to do it, but at some point we've got to bring up um, the B word, which I quite often ban from the podcast because it's so yeah. boring. Um, but Brexit, Brexit is dominating everything. And there's such a battle over, there's basically, what are there, 300 and something Tory MPs, there were 300 and something different ideas about what the plan for Brexit should be. Is there any way around that, sort of resolving that division in the Tory party? I think that we are going to get to some point in five or six months' time where we will have had a huge amount of noise, lots of, lots of very damaging public spats uh, from all manner of people within the Conservative Party, but we'll end up somewhere like where we started. We will, we will. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> as in, as in, as in, when when Theresa May st stood up and uh, announced the Chequers deal, we will, we will end up somewhere like that. There will be a few concessions along the way. There will be lots of kind of uh, kind of moments of, of of great risk, but but eventually a deal will be done. We'll get there, and the Tory party will probably carry on fighting behind the scenes, possibly sometimes in public over the next couple of years. But by and large period of division will be over. And I, I actually think this is, this is, there is a huge amount of noise at the moment. There is so little substance to the debate. It, do, it does feel like sometimes, Patrick, if I'm out of Westminster for the day, whether it's, I was, you know, went to Edinburgh a couple of weeks ago for something, and you just feel if you're out of Westminster for a day, and you look at Twitter, and it's going into total meltdown about something, and then you get to the end of the day, and you think, well, nothing, nothing seems to have, it's a quarter phrase, nothing has I changed. I think it's the Theresa May, May epitaph. Um, yeah, I mean, when we eventually come to a parliament vote, there's all this talk about parliament will never vote for a deal. It's not checkers they'll be voting on. What will be put up to parliament is a withdrawal agreement that the EU27 has gone for, that, that, that works, or the, the best that we can do. And at that point, MPs are either going to have to vote for that deal, as the best we can get, or by implication, they're voting for no deal. There's not going to be a general election, whatever Jeremy Corbyn wants. It's probably not going to be a second referendum. I, can't, I just can't see the route to that happening. So ultimately, and Labour MPs need to consider this too, that when, they, that when they vote, if they don't back the government, they are, by implication, endorsing no deal. And I, have, I, I don't think May will want to do it, but I think she'll feel we are leaving at the end of March, and that's what we're stuck with. What do you think, Hugo? How do you see the next few months? I mean, I think sometimes it's just the optimist in me which says she's got to get a deal, and then Parliament will vote for it. And then after March 29th, we never have to talk about it again. But um, it's not, you know, the numbers, partly because of the election last year, the yeah. numbers are so close. It is unpredictable. I would say, cautiously, this is a sort of 52% conviction, <laughs> 52, 52, 48% conviction. I don't think she's going to get a deal. There, is, there isn't a deal. There is not a deal that you can hold up and say, this compares favorably with the status quo. And so all the usual, sus I mean, the hard Brexiters will not vote for a soft Brexit. The anti-Brexiters will not vote for a soft Brexit. Both are right from their own perspectives. And I don't see a pathway towards her. I mean, unless, unless you have people going with the kind of the Gove plan, which is you basically you take what you can get and you, and you bank it, which is, which is possible. But even then, all, so much of the party has pumped out so much rhetoric again, against a soft Brexit. And, and they're right, more to the point, because it is 
compared to anything, compared to, well, certainly compared to Remain, a bad idea. Um, I don't see how they politically get there. I don't see how you get the Mogites, the, 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 rest, the rest of the, the, the ERG, unless that's a dance troupe, I forget. Whatever. The rest <laughs> Mogites of the rest and the ERG yeah. does sound like a sort of does a bit, funk band. Uh, and, but how you, get those, how you get those people walking, <laughs> walking through a lobby in favor of a soft Brexit, I just don't see how they, how they back down from everything they've said and do that. And I think they might not. Alice? I was sort of quite optimistic like you until Salzburg, actually. And then that everything fell apart for me, partly because I am, I'm afraid, I was always quite a Remainer, and I was sort of thinking that actually we might be able to do a deal and that, that you, know, you might get the Europeans on board. And I was actually vaguely pro some of the Europeans. But then as soon as President Macron came out and said, effectively, F off, we don't really like you very much, all my instincts were to say, actually, you know what, we don't need you. You know, we don't care. It doesn't matter what happens now. So I think now people will crash out, whatever. They just, the, the, the Europeans have made it pretty clear they're not going to be very helpful. Mm. And if they're not going to be helpful, it's going to be really hard. No, it's nothing to do, in a way, we think it's all to do with Parliament, but it is to do with the 27 as well. And so what does that mean for Theresa May, then? If she, if she doesn't get the deal, or she brings a deal and it gets voted down, is that curtains? I think then she has to go. With it. And basically, they have a leadership election the whole way through next summer, which is going to be more <coughs> pressing for all. I have a long-standing theory that this is all the wrong way around. And people are talking about how the Tories, the Tories need a big idea, they need a vision, and all this kind of stuff. I feel strongly that's rubbish. They've got a big <laughs> idea. It's called Brexit. It might be a terrible idea. That's not my fault. Um, it's a, but it is, they, you can't, the, problem with the, the problem the Tories have at the moment is, is Brexit. And the problem with Brexit is not that it's a bad idea or it's a silly idea. The problem that the Tories have with Brexit is that it's off-brand. You vote conservative because you're frightened of other people's big and bold idea for the future. <laughs> and the problem they have at the moment is people may be frightened of Jeremy Corbyn's big and bold idea for the future, but they look at the conservative idea and it's no more reliable, it's no more safe, it's no more, kinda, it's no more simple, it's no less ambitious. Um, and actually, to some extent, throwing everything up in the air with Brexit is loads bigger than absolutely. some of the individual yeah. policies and, that Jeremy Corbyn's proposing. And what the, what the Tories have managed to do really since the election, although they'd done it plenty beforehand as well, is absolutely tarnish their brand for being safe, for being reliable, for being a little bit boring. You know, which, I mean, conservatives don't realize this is why they vote, people vote conservative. Everybody else does. You know, people, don't, people, people aren't excited to vote conservative. They don't vote conservative because they're really just enthused about the direction the country's going in. They vote conservative because they're frightened of the alternative. And that's not, that's not like a a disgraceful thing, that's perfectly respectable. It's what the word bloody means, for God's sake. Um, and um, and that's, the, just the, that's the sort of bit of branding the Tories have completely lost, and they're going to be in trouble until they get it back. Just on that, Matt, sorry, very quickly, where they have got a, a key message, I was at a, a fringe event earlier that Kirsteen Hare, who's uh, an, an MP for one of the Angus, I think, is it one of the rural Scottish seats, she said why they did so well in Scotland, got 13 MPs up there, and as you said, enforced a Tory government on England, is that um, <laughs> their message was very clear, and it was about the Constitution. Their mm -hmm. message was, we want the union. Yeah. And she said, on the doorstep, actually more than the NHS or education, the people they were speaking to were really interested in staying part of Britain. And that was a very simple message they had at home. The Tories haven't got that simple message. But if that, that's a pro-status quo, just leave it alone. Yes. Don't, do, don't, do this, don't do this mad thing and bugger everything up. Is the, it's, been the, <laughs> it's been the traditional Tory message for, for generations, and they've lost it. Nothing has changed should be the Tory message. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will change. But they have become the disruptors, haven't they? And that's the thing about Ruth Davidson, mm. is actually you think she is, because she's all very modern and very different, and 
you know, she's not a natural Tory, but actually she is a natural Tory, isn't she? Because she's always, she's still going for the status quo. Yeah. She's, you know, she's a conciliator, she's a diplomat, actually, underneath, for whatever else she does. And that's why, actually, you instinctively think she would be a very good leader. And that's, so, if we move on to sort of the debate that's been happening in the conference, this, this argument between leave it alone and disrupt it, this is basically being played out all the time. I mean, even we even saw it in a sort of microcosm today between Liz Truss and Philip Hammond. Philip Hammond very much a leave it all alone guy. Uh, and Liz Truss, his deputy at the Treasury, actually introduced him with a load of jokes, partly at her own expense and then some at his. Um, but she's much more of the sort of embrace the Uber Deliveroo. She has a whole load. Uh, yes, she has a whole load of slightly bizarre slogans to embrace these people. She's she's huge on Instagram. She does seem to be having a bit of a moment in conference. Is that is that is that a characterisation that you recognise? Well, that sort of tension. So I think yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, Liz has clearly decided to uh, use her role and use the period before Brexit to push her type of politics, which is uh, effectively libertarian, uh, super free market marketeerism. Uh, and she does talk about uh, Uber riding, delivery eating, Airbnb being millennials, um, uh, and says the fact that they use those services is emblematic of their individualism and. Uh, use of markets. I, I personally don't really buy into that. I think um, ordinary people don't use Uber and Airbnb and uh, delivery because uh, they believe um, uh, vehemently in liberty and freedom, <laughs> but because those services are cheap and, uh, <laughs> uh, and delivery restaurants are quite good um, uh, and, uh, and that they're part of a modern economy. And I, and I actually, I think um, that's, it, I mean, this is emblematic of the, of the big debate that's about to happen or is starting to happen in the Conservative Party between basically uh, the kind of Thatcher legacy of uh, individualism and uh, the, the kind of actually the historic wing of the Conservative Party, the true roots of the Conservative Party, which is around uh, community and society and, um, uh, as you say, conserving things that matter, uh, that strengthening institutions which hold uh, society and the economy together. Um, uh, while at the same time reforming in order to uh, preserve. And I think um, uh, Onward, the organisation I lead, is very much focused on, on the latter rather than the former. I don't think the party or the country will be served by a kind of return to massive deregulation or, uh, or uh, kind of market, um, uh, market forces um, uh, on society. Do we think, anyone on the panel, that this tension which is emerging partly is a sort of reaction to Brexit, is that ir irreconcilable? Does it end up becoming a debate about, you know, you, you get people saying on one wing, if Jacob Rees-Mogg or Boris Johnson become leader, I couldn't be part of that. And then other people on the other wing saying, well, if Anasubi became leader, not that anybody really thinks that, apart from possibly Anasubi. Um, then that would be sort of, it, it, is the Tory party heading for that sort of tension, talk of a split? I think it's worse, it's sort of worse than irreconcilable. It's, it's tarnishing, it's damaging. It's because you, you have them, um, because all the, the, the deregulators, the smash it up, the throw it aways, they've been, they've been masquerading as, as calm, steady pairs of hands for, for a generation. They've been pretending. John Redwood has been pretending to be something he is not. And they now, and they a now. Human being. I, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they now, I wish He's I not could, it, is he? Yeah. No. I wish I could do the hand thing. Um, yeah. but, they now, um, but they now have their opportunity to, to show their true colors, which is smash everything. And they're, and they're doing it. And I think, um, so yeah, I, I think there will become a place 
there will become no place in the Conservative Party for the people who don't want to smash everything, because that's simply not the dominant voice in the party. Although I think, traditionally, because you have had wet and dry, you've had, you've had so many different divides within the Tory party traditionally, I'm sure there were people who were saying, if Michael Heseltine gets in, no way am I going to be part of this party. And, and I think you've always had these divisions, haven't you? So actually, I think it might settle down. Just, I think Brexit is the defining issue, not the disruptors versus the diplomats, really. So let's, um, as we've sort of touched on leaders, it's basically the same question as last year. Who do we think should be leader next time round, when that might happen? And is, who is the right person to sort of draw that together and to present the sort of the future of the Tory party? Are you asking professionally? Who's best for me writing sketches? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the person who put a tenor a year ago on Gavin Williamson to be Prime Minister. And I, I know, I know. Well, this was before I'd heard him speak. <laughs> he, he, I was sort of carried away by the whole House of Cards thing, and he'd gone from Chief Whip to... And then, gosh, he's awful. Um, but I don't, I don't... We can't make predictions on anything, can we, these days? No, no, the alternative is sitting here in silence. So, <laughs> uh, if we could. The, the Lib Dems have gone down these sort of, you don't have to be an MP, you don't really have to be anyone a Anyone can have a go. Do, any, anyone want to be Tory leader? <laughs> I feel particularly sort of underqualified in this regard because I had a conversation with my mother-in-law only yesterday about how Jeremy Hunt could do it. He seems like a safe pair of hands. I was thinking he'd be, been in Japan talking Japanese. It's really impressive. And then he stands up and does his speech about the EU being like the Soviet Union. And you think, oh, so I had thought that him speaking Japanese was like evidence of him being this incredibly cultured, rounded individual, where it's actually just this weird thing he does, like being good with a yo-yo or something. You know? <laughs> and he's actually as nuts as the rest of them. So, so, so don't look at me. I have no idea. I think that's why we are all desperate. So I definitely had a Jeremy Hunt moment. And then I interviewed him on Friday, and oh I dear. thought, actually, no, I was quite taken in by him. You know, in his great office of state, the rooms looked fantastic. He had his little wheelie bag that he'd just come back from the UN with. All looked fantastic. And then, exactly as you say... I don't think owning a wheelie suitcase should be seen as qualification for being Prime Minister. He had a wheelie suitcase and he was he in a nice room. He, had, he just looked the There part. were loads of us like that in the Hyatt. <laughs> he was travelling around and actually all, all like the Mandarins liked him well, until today. <laughs> <laughs> but they did like him and the fact that he speaks not just Mandarin and Japanese but he speaks French. He does the whole thing and then but he what was he, he There was clearly yeah. the, the general sense, and you'll see this in the papers tomorrow, there was a, there was a clear sense that he balls it up in his speech. Yeah, he's bluntly. blown it he, now. So he, he was supposed to be the non-Boris and then he goes and basically makes a Boris-esque joke. Although, do you remember in, when was it, 2015, 2016, when it was Theresa May who balls up a conference speech. And before then, everyone was like, Theresa May could be the next leader. And after that, it was like, never after that. So none of us know anything. There was a famous one where she made up a story about a cat. <laughs> yes, that was the one. <laughs> and she that? actually pressed it. it was, she claimed that, uh, that somebody hadn't been deported because yeah. they'd got a cat. And she actually said in her speech, and I'm not making this up. <laughs> <laughs> and she had. I, I, I want Mog. I want Mog to be Prime Minister. Oh. Because he, he would take us back to the gold standard. We would have the guinea. Everyone, everyone, instead of Boris Spikes, we had mog penny farthings everywhere. Um, no. Uh, gosh, who, no one wants to do isn't it. Because although on the one hand, you're right, and he's funny, and he's double-breasted suit and MP for the 18th century and all that. But the idea that he could lead a party that not that long ago was led by David Cameron in past gay marriage and the, you know, his views on abortion... You, he is an anomaly even in the Tory party right now, never mind the one that won a majority in 2015. Yes, yeah, but I think David Cameron should be a swear word in the Tory party now. This is all his fault. Yeah. And 
And he's sitting there in his shepherd's tent, not writing his, his memoirs. It's a caravan. Caravan. I love the line earlier in the summer, Cameron was asked how the memoirs were going, and he said, they're not going very well at the moment. Michael Gove is still one of the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm being flippant about Morg. I, it, it, there is a phenomenon. I mean, Morgmentum is, is real. And, and, but he, no, I've had lunch with him, and, and he doesn't want to be Prime Minister. I mean, he, he doesn't believe that he's of that. Uh, right, let's talk about Boris, because we've not, we've not really talked about Boris. Was that a cheer? I'm not sure what was, what was that? Yeah, it's a cheer. Is, it, is that a good cheer? It's a good cheer. You, you like Boris? I do like Boris. Okay. You've divided the room there. So um, the interesting phenomenon of Boris is that people like me, but not me because I think the opposite, but lots of journalists like him because he's good copy and they expect him to turn up and there's going to be a circus when he arrives in Birmingham tomorrow and everyone will trail around after him. He's going to give this rally to a thousand people, most of whom will be journalists. Um, and then he's going to leave. Where do we think the Boris bubble is? Because I'm coming to the view it might be deflating if not burst. You think he's not going to be an MP next year? Well, I, I, I posited the well, idea this morning just because it needs to, you know, why not? Uh, but I just, I think he's not, going to, he's not got the numbers. This is about third hand, this. But I bumped into somebody coming out of the, of the conference today, so they spoke to Connor Burns, and Connor Burns is like the last man standing in the camp, Boris. And apparently even he's telling people that Boris has gone too far. The idea that he's got the numbers to get on the ballots, never mind, you know, to enter the race, never mind to get on the final ballot to the members, just doesn't seem to be there. And if he doesn't become Prime Minister, why would he stay? He is eligible to be President of the United States. <laughs> Having been born In lots of ways. No, he's, he's renounced his passport for tax reasons, I think. Oh, we'll get it back. They'll love him <laughs> over there. A big buffoon Wait, what, what's, the, what's the Downing Street view of Boris? Well, so I'm not sure what the current Downing Street view of Boris is, although I can probably guess. Um, <laughs> uh, but the... Um, so you asked last week in your podcast whether we've reached peak Corbyn. I think we actually reached peak Boris in about 2008, and we've been slowly going down ever since. <laughs> um, there are obviously periods of um, increased noise and kind of velocity to Boris, but, but actually in reality, uh, is he gaining support amongst the people that matter? Is he gaining support amongst MPs and amongst the membership? Well, I mean, at the moment, you'd be pretty hard pushed to find MPs who actively want to come out and support him. He's making, I mean, he's making life so difficult for the party that lots of people just don't want to row in behind him and as you say even his closest supporters are slightly renouncing his his behavior um, and I, I've never really been of the view that actually the membership really will vote in Boris or someone like him I mean it, it, we always forget that actually David Davis um, trailed massively behind David Cameron in 2005 and there's a kind of if you if you look at leadership uh, previously uh, the more moderate candidate has always uh, trialed really could we get the microphone down to the, the Boris fan in the front, just to make, <laughs> the, just to make the counter case? I, mean, I thought the difficult thing was that, that it's not just the hijabs, it's that every week he has to now produce a column. Yeah, so yeah. every week yeah. everyone's looking at him. So this week it's like... This elephants. week is a cracker. This is, so take no. money off of poor African children and give it to the elephants. Was so he's going for the animal boat. Yeah. I mean, so is, is, is there a metaphor? Is there a similar one that's about six-skinned endangered beasts? Or is <laughs> also, the animal boat may be, may be a quite a harsh comment on the Tory membership. <laughs> <laughs> so the lady at the front, who's, who's a Boris fan, go on, make the counter-argument. Because he was um, on I've Got News For You, because he's got celebrity, and also because he was the one that we voted for when we voted to leave. And you voted, but you didn't vote for him, did you? you voted I voted for because Boris Johnson backed it, and um, I think he's a clever man, and I think he's got charisma, yeah. and I think he's clever. So I don't think you should dismiss him. If you think Jeremy Corbyn 
is leading the Labour Party and nobody rated him, why should you dismiss a man who's head and shoulders above Jeremy Corbyn? In a way, it's, well, for me, it's not a comment on his abilities. It's about his position in the party and the way he's done the sort of opposite of building a, a campaign. But he did, he did I'll, back I'll Brexit. Yeah, I think his abilities are hopeless. Well, there we are. He, what do you think he's done, apart from as we've been He's the mayor of London. Time. He did a good job yes, there. The Boris, Boris Bikes. Bikes. his bikes. They were Ken Livingston's yeah, bikes. Yeah, but they <laughs> got called Boris Bikes for a reason, because Boris was the one that people liked. Yeah, but they became Boris Bikes. And he's, he's got... He's this got feels like a niche, a slightly retro <laughs> argument. <laughs> Whose bikes are they? His, I sort of, I look at Boris now, it might sound a bit weird, but I sort of see Gordon Brown, but after he was Prime Minister, where you've kind of been in waiting for so long, and then there's just nothing there. And Boris has, um, he's had to sort of triangulate and move around for so long that he's sort of ruled himself out of standing for anything. There's no, like there was a time when Boris was a kind of Eurosceptic moderniser. He was sort of of the Cameron project, but with this kind of Eurosceptic bit. And there was, there was stuff on paper there that now really could be the answer. But he's, for tactical reasons, kind of shed every bit of that over the course of the, life, the last five years. And there's just, there's just not anything there anymore. You look at him as prime minister and it's, what would he do? What's left to do that he could want to do? What are his policies? What does he unite the country around? I, I can't see it and I'd be amazed if he can see it, except for the elephant thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's also lazy. I mean, Boris is undoubtedly intelligent, and he always has been since, since school. But since school also, because I've spoken to his former history teacher, who said Boris got into Oxford purely on the basis of his intellect, unlike Cameron, who said got in because he worked hard and wasn't actually bright enough. And then when they got there, Boris coasted through Oxford until six weeks before his finals, he realised he had to do some work to get a first. And he went to the Master of Balliol and said, can you get me some extra tutoring? Uh, which he did. And he got a 2-1. And the master of Balliol said that if Boris had left it eight weeks before finals, he might have made it. <laughs> but whereas Cameron worked hard and, and got a first. And Boris has, Boris has always cruised. And you can't... The days of Harold Macmillan, where you could sort of be a, a slight part-time prime minister and go and tuck yourself up in bed with a trollop, Boris does that, but in a slightly <laughs> different way, um, is... Um, it's, it's not going to happen. A prime minister, as you will know with Theresa, is a long, long yep. slog. Indeed. I mean, I, so I, Boris is a clever man, and he's also, he does have star quality. He's a rock star in political terms. He, of course, he is. Um, but it, the thing, my abiding memory of Boris is during the, the Theresa's leadership campaign, um, on the Sunday evening, just uh, the Sunday after David Cameron had resigned and the leadership campaigns were getting started, I was part of Theresa's leadership campaign, and uh, we were counting up the number of MPs we had in our camp. We got a text message through saying, Boris Johnson has 100 MPs already signed up. Two days later, got another text message saying that Boris Johnson had 75 MPs signed up. His, so his, his support amongst the parliamentary party is really soft. It's not substantial. It took him a lot of work to get um, a kind of really substantial number of MPs behind him in that leadership campaign. And there's a lot of people who actively support a Stop Boris campaign. So I, I just don't ever see him getting, getting there. Where this lady is right, though, he won in London twice. Mm, yeah. and, and with all respect to Sean Bailey, he's not going to win. No. Uh, and Steve Norris never, ne didn't win. And so Boris then had something to reach other parts. Whether he does now, I don't know. It was very odd someone who can go to the parts that Tories don't reach was only used on the penultimate day of the general election campaign in Darlington, which actually is perhaps a place that they might appeal to. But yeah. So I would just question whether or not Boris really is the Heineken Tory after, after the uh, Brexit referendum and, and, and all of the 
the kind of his shifting of position since. I just, I, I don't, so I don't, now he wouldn't I don't see, him. I don't think he has the same rock star appeal that he once did. And it was different when he was the mayor of London for the majority of the public. He was just that funny guy on the telly up a zip wire and, you know, he had no impact on their lives. He was, you know, fun. Basically alienated half of the electorate who voted for the other side. You've become a hate figure. So he's such a sort of lightning rod for all the you told lies on the bus and everything. And you're right, that some people, that's why some people voted for him. For other people, that's exactly everything they hate about Brexit is Boris and what he said and what he did and the bus and... Well, my experience is that um, with three children who are 20, 22 and 24, the vast majority of people are not interested in politics. They know nothing. They don't even know what a councillor is. And Boris does have star quality, and therefore the public generally have no interest in politics. They know Boris, and Boris has charisma, and therefore he could make the big policies that the Conservative Party should have. It is, it is true the conference hall is not awash <laughs> with charisma. The people aren't, <laughs> people aren't drowning in charisma from well, the I th stage. I think Ruth Davidson, the problem is she had that sort of star quality that Boris used to have because yeah, yeah. she is extraordinary in some ways. And I remember the first time... She's having a baby. I knew nothing about her until Tom Strathclyde said to me years ago, oh my God, you've got to meet this woman. She's a kickboxing lesbian and she's going to end up leading the Tories in Scotland. And I went... You know, leading no Tories. There are no Tories in Scotland. We, <laughs> we just didn't think she, she came from nowhere. We didn't think any of anything of her. He was the one that noticed. And but as soon as you meet her, you know, the first time I ever interviewed her, we were in a tiny little bed and breakfast in Earl's Court, and you just knew immediately that she was going to make it. She's just phenomenal. But so I think it was deeply depressing when she said she didn't want to do it. And I genuinely believe her when she says she doesn't want to do it. I mean, I think she might change her mind, but she really, at the moment, knows she doesn't want it. No, she's, she's, she's Scottish, and she's in Scotland. I mean, she's done amazing things mm. with the Tories in Scotland. You know, I mean, yeah, I but you came down. Well, yeah, quite. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, I mean, the, 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 the Tories used to be so, so yeah. toxic, toxic in Scotland, and it's entirely down to her. And she wants to be first not. minister. That there is a real goal. She, I mean, it, she is, she is Scottish, and in Scotland, you know, yeah. she, her political vision, her political identity is Scottish in Britain. It's mm. and so I mean, I, I don't think, I, I, I have no idea what her connections and op an operation would be like in Westminster. But I just don't believe for a moment that that's how she sees herself, how she sees her future, what she wants to do. I interviewed her a couple of weeks ago, which will come out as a podcast in a couple of weeks. And she was talking about her book, but she also talked, she basically said she wanted to be, she's already the MSP for Butte House, because that's in her mm. seat. But she wants to be the MSP in Butte House. <laughs> that was absolutely what she wanted to do. Why would she, when she can basically commute up the road to work, to part of the Scottish Parliament, why would she, she's about to have a baby, she's got her entire life in Scotland, it's a miserable old job being an MP, going up here, particularly from Scotland, going up and down to Westminster and all that. And, and There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Without any gaps, you could do all that, become an MP and then still get beaten by... Jeremy Hunt, and then she's, you know, back to being Scottish Secretary. And then, you know, David Mundell has fun, but I'm not sure uh, it's quite as much fun as being the First Minister. Um, let's, uh, before we open up to questions, let's just go back to the, the essay question then. Will it survive the Tory party, and should it? Or is there all this talk of a new party and a, you know, maybe a new centrist party only works if it takes some Labour and the Conservatives. It can't just be the lopped-off bits of the Labour Party that Chucker's not happy with. Um, what, do we th- what do we think? Is, is there a big explosion coming in politics, or is it going to be more boring than that? I'll start with you, Will. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, probably pretty boring. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think the two-party uh, political structure will survive. Um, I think the Conservative Party uh, will continue to survive. And actually, if we can get its act together, I think there's a massive opportunity for the Tory party to become the kind of mainstream uh, kind of uh, party post Blairite, kind of owning that bit of the electorate, um, uh, especially once Brexit's over and that kind of kind of fissure in, in, in the electorate and in politics uh, uh, has been dealt with. Um, uh, I think politics I- at the moment is um, not delivering at all on the big social and economic challenges that this country faces. And I think that uh, at some point will lead to an uh, exciting new agenda and possibly a new person uh, to do that. But I don't think that's going to be for some time yet. I think uh, we've got a couple more years of, uh, of the, the grind that we're currently suffering through uh, yet. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> Patrick. I miss Nick Clegg. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, it was only a few years ago that we were all saying the days of two-party politics are over, we're going to have sort of hung parliaments forever. And uh, Things do change, but... We've got one now. Well, yeah. I know, but it's... But it, <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've got a hung parliament, but we've also got very divided. The right and left are a yeah. long way apart, which, which they weren't at the time. The Conservatives have got 308 MPs or something like that. 20 years ago, they had a 179. So, I mean, I don't know why we're talking about extinction when uh, things have been far, far worse. But um, I just hope at some point, when Brexit is done, we all just sort of go back to nice, cosy, consensus, metropolitan, pleasing. I, I remember when for about a year, the biggest story in British politics was David Cameron didn't have a tie on. Yes, those were those. <laughs> oh, but it was a simpler time. <laughs> just one, one more thing on this. Um, so having been down at the Labour conference, there's some very weird speeches that, that <laughs> from the platform from members. And there was one woman who, who just stood up and, and her main pitch was that we're not as bad as the Tories. I thought, there's something for a mug. But <laughs> um, for a long time, the Tory position has been, we're not as bad as Labour. And to go back to what we were saying a little while ago, there needs to be a rediscovery of something better than that. Alice, the, the sort of Jeremy Corbyn bogeyman strategy hasn't worked. Is he, there needs to be a positive reason to vote for the Conservatives, not just a negative. Well, also because he has tapped into the fact that a lot of people do feel still that the rich became richer after the whole economic crash. And the poor became poorer. And that, that's not just the poor. Most people felt poor after the crash. But a few people did do very well out of it. And he's really tapped into that. But I think on the question of uh, 
another party. I think you have to look at President Macron and you look at how incredibly popular he was at the beginning and how incredibly unpopular he is now. He's, and he's the having a new party is not going to it's just not going to make any difference in the end. We've got to sort it out. It doesn't really matter what the parties are. We might as well carry on with Labour and Tory. They've just got to start getting slightly better. <laughs> We've already better. got the colours. We don't want any like, exactly. you don't have to make it any more complicated. What about you, Hugo? The Tories will survive because the Tories always survive. Because the Tories basically, since their inception, have been devoted to one thing, and that's their own survival and their own government. They're not like them. <laughs> which I don't even say it as a negative thing. You know, Labour, Labour has a sort of a, a social mission. The mission of the Conservative Party is to be in power. So, um, so they will find a way to do that. But I think we will reach a stage, we're not quite there yet, but people look at everything that's going wrong with Labour and they say, Labour's got to remember that the only way Labour's ever won power is by being more centrist, by being more in the centre, by appealing out of its normal vote into everybody else. And there will come a point relatively soon, I think, where people will remember, that, or the Tories will remember, that the same is true of the Conservatives. They will look back to the Cameron era and go, you know what, we used to win elections then, they'll say. And they'll think, and we're not winning elections now. And they will remember that there is a, that there is a sort of a, a soft conservative, a centrist conservative thing that Britain finds palatable and certainly finds more palatable than mogism. And I think eventually they will get back there, although it might be a while. Excellent. That seems like a good point to open it up to questions. Gentlemen down here in the second row. So what is, in your opinion, happened to the centre ground of British politics? Nice, straightforward, easy, <laughs> easy one to answer. Will? I think what's happened to the centre ground is, is essentially what's happened to the centre ground in basically every other main uh, kind of uh, Western uh, liberal democracy, which is uh, the kind of no holds barred kind of we know best liberalism of the last 20 years or so um, has been found to uh, not benefit everyone equally. Um, and especially post-crash, we've seen some people benefit and lots of people feel like they're being left behind. Um, and as a result, they're being uh, attracted to the extremes and the center of gravity in politics is, is kind of seeping to the edges. Um, the only way of putting that back is by asserting a new settlement in the middle rather than by uh, asserting kind of increasingly radical and uh, extreme views on either side. And that's, that's what I think the, the Conservative Party certainly should do and, and certainly the politics that I espouse. I mean, I, I've been wanting to write this column for ages and I can't do it because I can't get my analogy right, but about the Overton window. Right? People used to talk about the Overton window, where you've got, you've got the spectrum of politics, and the Overton window is the acceptable bit that moves around. And people used to say, oh, Jeremy Corbyn's moved the Overton window to the left, so the centre has moved to the left. But no, Brexit moves it to the right, and so the centre's over here. And I've got this idea, and you'll see when I now say this why I can't put this in a column. But the Overton window, it's not a window, it's, it's a cervix, right? And so it, 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 bear with me, it dilates. <laughs> and it grows, and so it actually spreads. But the centre is the point; is is in exactly the same place. So the left and right are much further away, but the centre is still where it was. And I do think we'll get back to that. I knew that's that's why it's not been a column. God help me. <laughs> well, I didn't. That wasn't how I thought that anecdote was going to end. Alice, have you got anything you want to add? <laughs> what What about the centre? What has happened to the centre? I think they will come back to the centre in the end. I mean, funny. Danny Finkelstein wrote a piece saying we need to have. Tony Blair back as the leader. I think that's completely wrong. I think he ruined the centre for quite a long time because people looked at it and thought, we've done this, and actually, we don't like what we had, and it's all gone horribly wrong. But in the end, we will come back to it. Isn't the centre actually just what happens when, as Hugo was saying, 
somebody from the right reaches over to the left to build enough votes to win, or somebody from the left, it's not actually about the middle, it's about having a sort of acceptable, it's about building a coalition of I might, voters. I might have been saying that, but I don't think that. There's, a, there's, a, there's absolutely a radical centre. You know, Blair, Blair was the radical centre. The radical centre, it's about, it's about using, um, it's, it's basically about using private provision to fulfil social aims. You know, it's absolutely there. Blair was it, Cameron was it. No one is it now. Okay, let's, uh, let's uh, take another question. Uh, let's go to the lady down at the front. To what extent do you think that the media filter is slightly responsible for the hollowing out of the centre ground of politics? If Boris makes great copy, it encourages re rhetoric that is extreme, and I'm just interested in the panel's uh, opinion on that, because you're all illustrious yeah, it's all our fault. members of the fourth estate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was when, I felt that when Vince Cable started making sexual allusions in his speech, he thought everyone has to be more and more outrageous to get noticed yeah. and get, and I think that is a problem, and I think the press probably stir that slightly. But they always are competing with each other to do it as well. It's not like we asked Vince to say anything in his speech. He just came out with it, didn't he? <laughs> we didn't even ask him to make a speech, to be honest. <laughs> we could have, we could, he could have just emailed it over, and they could have saved themselves the, saved themselves the trouble. I mean, it is a problem, and Nick, Nick Clegg suffered from this, and then when he went into government, he, he sort of never really shook it off. If you are on the outside, you do feel like you've got to make more noise to to get noticed. Is it all our fault, Hugo? Yeah, probably, most things are. But um, I mean, there are prominent centrist politicians in, in Britain, like Sadiq Khan is a centrist politician. You know, he, he, he gets a hearing, he does, he does quite well. Um, I think it, I don't know really, I mean, because the, the media is a sort of institutionally centrist organization. Well, it might not necessarily look at, you know, pretty, pretty much every, every journalist is somewhere in the center ground with, with the odd exception. There is certainly something about media generally, and particularly social media, that amplifies the extremes that we haven't yet come to terms with. But I don't think it is our fault. I think it is the fault of politicians in the center who are simply failing, who coasted and are failing to make the case and are, dis are either discombobulated or hiding right now. I'm, I'm, until two years ago, 80% oh, of all mentions of Jacob Rees-Mogger in my column. <laughs> and now look, I've created a monster, um, a monster. Um, no, it is our fault to some extent because we're going to be attracted to what people say. But I've been to boring centrist speeches. There was a point just after Corbyn became leader where Rachel Reeves, Dan Jarvis, Yvette Ooh. Cooper, they all did these speeches around budget time often to try and set themselves up as, and they said nothing interesting. And so, okay, maybe the media should still report boring speeches because there's something interesting in there philosophically, but they didn't have any ideas, really. They were going through the same platitudes. Uh, and so they need better ideas. And there's lots of ground. I know the trouble is Brexit dominates. But I do think housing and people feeling they don't have a stake in society is an area where ideas can be generated. Okay, let's take another question. Gentleman there with his hand up. Oh, you've all, I mean, you've all got your hands up, but the one, the one I was pointing at. Last week, and also in 2017, Labour had a much larger amount of l young support. What more can the Conservatives do to get young voters? I spoke to somebody today who, because there's, there's been a big thing at the Tory Commons about how there's a record number of young people. And I spoke to a Cabinet Minister today, so it's really good, because not all of them are wearing three-piece suits. <laughs> <laughs> Hugo, you're, you're wearing a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> 41. Um, <laughs> I, did, I wasn't at Labour this year. I went, I went last year to the Labour Party conference, and, uh, and I had a, and the year before, in fact, and I went, I went clubbing with Momentum, and it was great fun. I went to this, um, I went to this really strange party in a kind of disused church hall. There was a kind of sort of grunge band, and everyone was standing around drinking cans of Red Stripe, and then 
at half past 12, everything stopped so Jeremy Corbyn could talk for 35 minutes about the miners' strike, which was a, a low point <laughs> of the evening. But what really struck me about all the young people there was they were bright, they were articulate, they were ambitious, they were basically generally clever graduates of good universities. They were the same people who 12 years earlier had been Cameron Conservatives. And they were just, which they'd have punched me in the face for saying this, but they were those people. And they were the kind of the Oxbridge graduates, the Bristol graduates, the Nottingham graduates. And they were the people who saw when they were getting enthused about politics that might change Britain, this is simply where it was. Now, the Tories don't have anything like that at the moment. What about, and it's the old idea that you, everyone starts off left wing and the older yeah. they get, the more you move to the right. Do you think that's still true? I don't think that is. I think there, there were two reasons. One with the students that they think that actually all their loan, everything might be wiped out. And that is quite seductive. My son's just gone up to university and I think he secretly is wishing that Jeremy Corbyn gets in because then he doesn't have to pay the 20. Oh, but they won't do it retrospectively. Well, he, oh, did, well, he, did, do, turn, yes. he did say that to NME and then it got a bit of a grey area. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah. living in hope of that. And then on, I've got four children and I think they're actually, quite often they're naturally quite conservative children about various areas. It's just that as you say, they want new ideas. And they're also, the thing they are is unbelievably politically correct. And actually, when you say Jacob's going to do well, the idea that Jacob Rees-Mogg is anti-gay marriage or you know, anti-abortion is so alien to them yeah. that as soon as you say anything like that, they are utterly, utterly horrified by when, it. When the, when the conversation that lots of teenagers, because I've got a teenage daughter as well, is that and the conversation they're having is about identity and gender and the, the idea of going back yeah. to, to not supporting yeah. gay marriage seems mad. What about you, Will? You, you've launched a think tank onward to try and, you know, make the, make the toys young and funky. Is it, possible to, is it possible for the toys to be cool in a way that Corbyn has made Labour? So one of the first things we did was I put out an email to a very small mailing list uh, asking under 35s to come to an event about centre-right politics. I was expecting five old uh, and, and women and a dog. Um, and we had 120 people apply and 80 people turn up, all under the age of 35, all completely engaged in what, what I call centre-right politics, the type of politics that we espouse. It, the idea that young people are not engaged in centre-right politics is rubbish. Um, the Conservative Party just needs to go and try and get them, which has failed to do miserably for years and years and years. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. I'm not sure we still quite know the answer to the essay question, but that's <laughs> fine. We've, uh, we've, we've got lots down on paper, so that's, uh, we'll score some marks. But my huge thanks to all of you for coming in. Uh, but please thank uh, the panel, Hugo Wifkin, Alice Thompson, Will Tanner and Patrick Kidd. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.